sort of begin by saying that I'm, I'm stunned and absolutely delighted to see so many familiar faces. Uh, even as I went to do some crucial last-minute <coughs> research uh, in the turf a couple of minutes ago, uh, I walked past uh, Michael Alexander, who, whose translations of Old English poetry were one of the things that made me get into this field in the first place. And then as I walked a little bit further towards my point of research, uh, I bumped into John Randall, who somebody I supervised in Cambridge a million years ago uh, for a PhD, who's now at the University of Mississippi, and I'm delighted to see him. It's good to see so many families, so many friends, so many colleagues, former, present students. And I'm particularly pleased to see those who travel to attend, not least from, from Scotland, from Italy, from Canada, from the United States, and, and even as far away as Cambridge, which <laughs> seems very distant in many ways. I'm especially touched that our darling daughter Ellen has appropriately enough found a window in her trip to Prague, you can't have a defenestration joke early enough in a normal lecture, <laughs> to be here, especially since the last time she attended a formal lecture of mine, she was, uh, I think, four, and she walked out after less than ten minutes. <laughs> um, I just want to make it clear, this is not an option for you, Oscar. Uh, the Royal Tinder Bosworth Professorship of Anglo-Saxon in the University of Oxford and at Pembroke College is, as the name suggests, and just imagine the fold-out business cards, uh, something of a mongrel creation. And as one with something of mongrel educational background, I'm both honoured and humbled to be standing here today. The Rawlinsonian chair, um, as it then was, uh, was first occupied 220 years ago, uh, in, not by Eric Stanley, that was just a myth. <laughs> in 1795, and I am in fact the 22nd uh, incumbent, although John Earl held it twice. While I've only had the privilege of knowing and indeed being taught uh, as an undergraduate here by my two immediate predecessors, Martin Godden and Eric Stanley, who still corrects my essays, uh, given my mixed background, I've had the parallel privilege of having been taught earlier as an undergraduate at Cambridge by two holders of the sister Elrington and Bosworth chair, namely Ray Page uh, and Michael Lappage, who still corrects the corrections on my essay, <laughs> and of being a friend and colleague to two more in the shape of Simon Keynes and Peter Clamos, with the latter of whom uh, I shared an office in Emmanuel for several happy years. Bosworth himself, the uh, Rawlinsonian professor who connects this particular stack of chairs, was a pioneering lexicographer, and he left money uh, for them in his will that ensured, on the one hand, the survival of the one and the foundation of the other, and the depressing fact that already by 1870 the University of Oxford was contributing more than twice what was raised by Rawlinson's original endowment to keep the chair occupied has, sadly, a very modern ring. We all sit on the edge of our seats, and if the future is uncertain, we can at least celebrate the past. Bosworth's great predecessor, Richard Rawlinson was a protege of Isaac Newton, friend of the noted antiquary Thomas Hearn. He was an alumnus of St. Paul's, also of Eton, St. John's College, Oxford. He should have been Prime Minister, obviously. Uh, and he's buried at St. John's. That faint whir you can hear is him spinning. Uh, <laughs> Rawlinson clearly held very strong views, and in two infamous codicils to his original will of 1750, he stipulated first, in 1752, that, quote, such professor or lecturer, so from time to time to be elected, shall continue a bachelor and single man so long as he shall hold the said professorship and enjoy the profits of the said endowments. While in 1754, presumably after I imagine must have been quite a party, he declared that, quotes, it is my true intent and meaning that no native of Scotland or Ireland <laughs> or any of the plantations abroad 
or any present or future member of the Royal or Antiquary Society shall have, take, receive, or enjoy any profit, benefit, or advantage from, by, or out of any part of my estate. <laughs> As a, a married fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, of proud Scots-Irish descent on the distaff, <coughs> I should probably just apologise and leave now. Pro <laughs> Vice-Chancellor, we can, we can carry on if you like. Perhaps in, in keeping with the somewhat strict terms of the original endowment, the early Rawlinson professors, generally appointed for a fixed five-year term, I'm not suggesting that, seems to have been a rum bunch. Charles Mayo, the first, apparently had his lectures applauded, and as if despite his benefactor, as soon as he stepped down, became a fellow of the Royal Society. <laughs> the third, James Ingram, provided over Trinity College. The fourth, J.J. Coneybeer, was primarily a geologist. He didn't want to do Anglo-Saxon, but he was the last one out of the pub when they were choosing. <laughs> and he later became Professor of Poetry. He collated Thorkelin's first edition of Beowulf that was published in uh, 1815. It would have been published earlier, but in 1807, the British Navy bombed the warehouse containing it. Commenting on Beowulf has never been for the faint-hearted. Uh, and he annotated his copy with the sad and damning final words, Tidium Trienne, three years of boredom. <laughs> a particularly colourful early incumbent, Francis Pearson Walesby of Lincoln College, where they have a history of colourful incumbents, uh, came without any obvious interest or qualification in Anglo-Saxon at all, but was described as, this is the official history of Lincoln College, quote, extremely able, a witty conversationalist, especially after a bottle of port. <laughs> but somewhat indolent. Naturally, he went on to edit the works of uh, one of Pembroke's favourite sons, Samuel Johnson, and was evidently a pedagogical innovator of the highest order, and the contemporary sub-rector of Lincoln... Why don't we have sub-rectors with names like this? This one was called Octavius Ogle. <laughs> Reports how, when uh, equipped with said bottle of port, Walesby was taking a student through Livy, not necessarily the most Anglo-Saxon of authors, and every time Hannibal's name came up, as it did rather often uh, in Livy, he was wont to exclaim, oh, Channel Eric, here's that old cock again. <laughs> Let's drink his health. <laughs> I, uh, I don't really drink port but I do have my own pedagogical methods now <coughs> Heather Yes. thank you <laughs> <laughs> thank you for giving me the horn uh, so the history of Lincoln College soberly if in context I think rather inappropriately records that in 1858 Walesby again this is the official history of Lincoln College died well alcoholised. <laughs> His successor, R.M. White, abandoned a plan to edit the Dictionary of Old English, went on to edit the Ormulum, and was arrested under uncertain <laughs> circumstances in Moscow. <laughs> Although it's not clear whether he was connected with his editorial choices. Henry Wilson was convicted of heresy, overturned only after an appeal, which was then appealed, John Earle was a first-class classicist, the first Rawlington and Bosworth professor, A.S. Napier, pioneered, pioneered the scientific study of Woolstan. Sir William Craigie was a great scholar and proponent of Old Norse Icelandic, who, like Napier, uh, sorry, a field furthered by Tolkien, perhaps the most famous uh, holder of this chair, and Tolkien taught Old Norse every single year that he was in this job. And like Napier, he also held the Merton Chair of English Language and Literature and through his brilliant 1936 British Academy lecture fundamentally changed the way we think of Beowulf. Alistair Campbell kept faith with both literary languages of Anglo-Saxon England. 
writing the grammar of Old English on the one hand, editing some important Anglo-Latin poetry on the other. I'm going to pause there before Eric gets up and leaves. Uh, in short, there have been drunks, heretics, heads of houses of places called Trinity College, classicists, Icelandophiles, promoters of Anglo-Latin poetry, scholars who've worked on Wolfstan and on Beowulf. I'm not sure under which one of those auspices I was elected, <laughs> but I'm grateful. Although in following such colourful and legendary figures, you will appreciate my inevitable anxiety. As I said, I spent two years as an undergraduate in Cambridge before a further two years here, and in the light of that first, from a strictly Oxonian point of view, premature matriculation, it is perhaps fitting that I should wish to begin my observations on Anglo-Saxon verse with some comments on performance anxiety. Before proceeding to, I hope, something a little more seminal. We might begin with some verses... I'm sorry, Mum. We might begin with some verses that have haunted me since I was 17 when I read them in the then, to me, uh, and I think much underrated, Study of Old English Literature by C.L. Wren, who succeeded Tolkien, and preceded Campbell in the Rawlinson and Bosworth chair. Attempting to offer a Germanic background for vernacular verse, Wren cites a poem from the North African Latin anthology compiled around 533, preserved uniquely in the late 8th century uh, Codex Salmasianus, Paris, Bibliothèque Nationale, 10318, where it has the rather arresting title, On Barbarian Banquets, and compares Vandal culture, oddly, unfavourably with that of Rome. It's passage number one on page two of your multicolored handout. <coughs> Inter ail scoticum scapia matia yadrincan, non audet quisquam dignose dicere versus, Calliope marido, trapidet se jungere bacco, ne pedibus non stet, ebria musa. Suis. Now, actually, we've got five of the only seven words of vandal, vandalic language, that we have are in this first line. Uh, it's probably appropriate that the only other two words that we know, Freya Armes, mean, Lord have mercy. <laughs> you now have mastered the vandal language. Um, some later commentators suggest that the word skapia means not to make poetry, be a shop, to, but to, but waiter, in fact. But I think the context of the second couplet underlines the poetic context. The manuscript makes it clear that we've got four lines in this poem. But the fact that the first three lines are in hexameters and the fourth is a pentameter caused some early editors to split the text. And in a fashion I think all too familiar to scholars of Old English verse, later editors have tended rather weakly simply to follow suit. This is a theme. Somebody makes a decision in Old English poetry and everybody else just jumps into line. To do so, I think, is to miss the point, which is poetry. Calliope is no ordinary muse. She's specifically the muse of heroic, in other words, hexameter poetry. And what she fears to lose in the face of the onslaught of Bacchus, drinking that, like poetry, undoubtedly links the two halves of the poem, is her footing. The sequence Calliope, Trepidat, Pedibus, reducing the six feet of the hexameter to the five of the pentameter, given... Uh, which is a trope actually very common in classical verse, and Ovid in particular makes play with this trope again and again and again. The poem links drinking and verse, and demonstrates the dangerous allure of both. I think this pretty little piece anticipates by about uh, 1,500 years those deathless lines that I'm sure you all know attributed to Dorothy Parker. I like to have a martini, two at the very most, three and I'm under the table, four and I'm under the host. Uh, now, aside from the broad themes of poetry and revelry and performance anxiety that seem appropriate to an inaugural lecture, I want to highlight the uneasy interaction here between Latin on the one hand and the vernacular 
on the other hand, whether composed... Uh, and what I want to talk about is the whole corpus of Anglo-Saxon verse, whether composed in Latin or Old English, and suggest that we might profitably consider it as a whole rather than dividing it up, and that we miss much when we see things from only one side. It's only very recently that I realised that this rather poor scrap of poetry preserved by chance in a single copy should link so closely with the set of poems that immediately follow it in that manuscript, which is also the earliest witness to that much-copied text, the Enigmata of Symphosius, whose name means drinking party animal, the guy who hangs out at the symposium, and which also, in preface, mentions a drunken muse and the dangers of being at a banquet when you're well-oiled. This is passage number two. I'll give you the old the translation. Uh, while the festival season of Saturn was returning, festivities that were always perpetual fun for me, after the happy banquets, after the sweet draughts of the table, among the dribbling crones and the lippy lads, when the eloquence of a well-oiled tongue clamoured far and wide, then the wordy throng in their zeal for senseless speech pondered long some sort of random trifles with grand titles, but they uttered many a frivolous thing. It was no small matter, but like a great contest, the setting and solving in various ways in turn, but I, who had brought nothing with him, with me, that I could say, so that I alone should not be seen to be shamefully silent, composed these verses with extemporised song. Among the unwise there is no need to be wise. Darwinian let talk, what non sapit abelia musa. Forgive me, reader, but you can't expect a drunken muse to make sense. A later line by the 6th century poet Venantius Fortunatus is the only one of 900,000 lines of Latin poetry surveyed in the Poetia Nova database of Latin poetry up to 1250 that includes this arresting image of the drunken muse, the Abelia Musa, in a context that makes it clear he's borrowing from one or other of these earlier texts. Now, whether what is sometimes called as the Vandal Epigram, the first poem there, borrows from Symphosius or vice versa, I hope it's clear that there's some connection between these texts, not only from their contiguity in the manuscripts, which uniquely contains the Vandal epigram, but also from the same sequence of echo words. Uh, this is in blue on your handout. Inter madido ebria musa, inter madidae ebria musa. Why is this important for us? Well, Symphosius is a hugely vital figure in the history of Anglo-Saxon verse, because Aldhelm, who's said to have been a poet in both Latin and Old English, and proclaims himself to have been the first of the Germanic race to compose extensively in Latin verse, names Symphosius as a model for his own set of a hundred enigmata, which he describes as among his earliest efforts. He tells us that he learnt how to write Latin poetry at the famous Canterbury School of Theodore and Hadrian. The latter was a North African who presumably introduced Symphosius as a teaching text into Anglo-Saxon England, probably at some time between 670 and 674, and he included his enigmata along with a pair of poetic treatises sent as a gift to King Aldfrith of Northumbria, who was himself a noted poet in Irish shortly after the latter's accession in 685. Did Aldhelm know the tale of Symphosius's performance anxiety and subsequent flow of extemporised song at the drinking party? The idea that Symphosius' story was known in Northumbria is, of course, intriguing, given its similarity to Bede's account of the sudden poetic inspiration of Cadman, after his own episode of performance anxiety at a convivium, what in the later Alfredian version is described as the Yabershipper. Now, despite what is routinely written, while Bede is very careful indeed to associate Cadman's inspiration with Whitby, the monastery of the famous abbess Hild, he's equally careful not to link the episode with her personally. Indeed, twice, 
he declines to name the abbess in question. So it may be more natural, as several scholars have suggested, to connect Cadman and his poem not with Hild, who died in 680, but with the time of her successor, Alfled, who just happens to be Aldfrith's half-sister. The circulation of two such stories of performance anxiety and sudden poetic production, one in Latin, one in Old English, in Anglo-Saxon England in the last decades of the 7th century, forms a useful beginning context for further consideration of verse in the two main literary languages. Now, Bede's enthusiasm for the text of Cadman's hymn has rarely been matched by modern scholars. But if we mark it up to emphasise certain aspects of specific appeal to Anglo-Saxon poetic sensibilities, I think its artistry becomes perhaps more readily apparent. This is passage three on your handout. For the clue, for the key to the markup, you need to go back to page one. Poetic words are in purple. <coughs> Hapax legomena, words that only appear once in the poetic record, are marked in red. Rhyme is in light blue. Continual alliteration of consonants is double underlining in green. Continued alliteration in vowels is double underlining in orange. And parallels and echo words are in uh, italics and darker blue. <laughs> what I want to say is that this is part of a much wider project where I've now marked up almost all Old English poetry in this way. So showing at a glance what are literally purple passages, uh, preserved alongside almost always a riot of red, demonstrating very vividly the individual styles of different poets. Scholars have long pointed out Cadman's use of no fewer than eight different terms for God in these nine lines. Herben reaches word, metodes, wolderfather, eche dritten, hali sheppen, monkenes ward, eche dritten, freya almetti. And there are four in each half of the poem, lines one to four, lines five to nine, dealing with God's miraculous nature on the one hand and his creation on the other. And with one formula, Erchedrichten, the eternal Lord, uh, and one example of a formulaic system, Herven reaches Ward, Monkinus Ward, repeated in each half. Echo words, given here in blue italics, likewise unite the two parts, with the shared elements overlapping in the medial lines four to five. If I just read out the words that connect, you'll see they're more or less in the same sequence. Herven, Ward, Merti, Erche, Drichten, Schulp, Herben, Chep, Ward, Erchi, Drichten, Al, Mechti. It's a very, very complicated little poem. And presumably that was the point when it came out. Highlighted by continual uh, vocalic alliteration, double orange underlining, which hasn't come out very well in my copy. It's lines four and five uh, there, again, right in the middle. <coughs> What I think is interesting, and there's rhyme, midnyard, monkin as well. In terms of diction, it contains seven words, seven forms given here in purple that are only found in poetry. And two of those, Alda and Foldu, have cognates in other Germanic languages, um, Old High German, uh, Icelandic, and may represent an inherited poetic word hoard. This is a bit of a problem. We've got about 350 words we can identify as poetic, 32 of them have only purely poetic uh, uh, distribution in the other Germanic languages. But these are among the most common words that we find. There's also a purely poetic compound, Wolderfader, that may speak to a spirit of innovation. Many such purely poetic compounds occur only once, and in the rest of the handout you'll see them in red. Now, the identification of poetic words in Old English has a long and distinguished history to which a string of scholars, not least Holthausen, Grein, Kurler, Sweet, Kleiber, Kleiber, 
Clark Hall Cronin, and, and most of all, I would say, Mark Griffith of this passage, of this parish, uh, have contributed. Um, pending the conclusion of the Toronto Dictionary of Old English, if after today's news it's ever going to be finished, uh, I rely here independently on the, the work that was produced independently by Cronin and Griffith, both of whom focus on simplexes. Cronin assumes adjectives, Griffith discounts words rarely attested, but also includes verbs, including those with prefixes. If you work between the two of them and check it against the Dictionary of Old English, we get a list of about 350 items, which is the purple ones uh, on your list. It's already dwarfed by the Dictionary of Old English. So in a very unclear search mechanism that you can use, you can identify poetic words in the dictionary for A to G, and there are 1,800, 1,877 as of today, that are poetic, and about 1,000 of those only occur once. And almost a quarter of those are from Beowulf. So Beowulf massively overrepresented within this corpus. Beowulf represents 10% of Old English verse, 1% of the total corpus, but 25% of the uniquely attested words. These figures tally nicely with findings of Father John Madden of the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies uh, in Toronto, who as long ago as 1953, in a Harvard dissertation that's quite hard to get hold of, although I shall be asking Paul Charmack if he can help me with it, uh, studies in word frequencies in Anglo-Saxon poetry calculated that in the 30,271 lines of Old English in a survey, 168,000 forms, you can reduce it to 8,000 words, effectively. Madden divided these 8,000 words into three groups. Parent words, words that are not compound, could not be further reduced or included under other parent words. All words that are compounded but have common prefixes and suffixes. And finally, the ones I'm interested in, compound words strictly so-called. Words made up of adjective noun, noun, noun combination. 60% of the words in Old English poetry are compound. This is Madden's figure. 43% are noun, noun, adjective, noun, compounds. And only, 20, uh, only 40% are what he calls parent words. As Madden puts it, these figures testify to the highly synthetic nature of the diction of Anglo-Saxon poetry. Well over half of the words are compounds. And nearly 60% of those compounds are found once. Only in a single author or text representing about a quarter of the total vocabulary. By way of comparison, there's about 10,000 words in Homer in the 28,000 lines of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And according to the online Perseus vocabulary tools, and I wish we had the same vocabulary tools available for Old and Middle English, of these, 1,500 occur once, all compounds or mostly compounds, about 15%. Homer, great wordsmith, we always celebrate Homer, the figure is 15%. Old English, 25%. Now, the idea that if only we had much more Old English poetry, these forms, especially the compounds, uh, that now seem unique would not in fact be so, appears on the face of it a very attractive one, since undoubtedly it must in some sense be true. The more we have, the more we might be able to find these words. It's certainly the notion that's regularly trotted out by those who want to appeal to a wider so-called oral formulaic tradition. It's the idea propounded by Milman Parry, the father of oral formulaic theory, but then interestingly rejected by his disciple, Albert Lord, who instead suggested that strict forms probably were unique, but they might be part of wider formulaic systems. His analysis, I think, is essentially meaningless. We all talk and write by fitting words to pre-existing patterns, 
So instead of appealing to a nebulous and rather romantic notion of what we don't know, and probably never will, we might do better to work with what we actually have. The more so, since the classicists, who in these matters are generally two to three decades ahead of us, uh, have published series of articles where they've attempted to replicate what if, Wallen has an article, what if we had seven times as much Homer as we have now? How many of the words that are unique would no longer seem unique? And the answer is not many. I mean, they would all seem unique, if you see what I mean. You don't get rid of many. I'll give you a very quick example. Let's imagine we had only six of the seven major manuscripts containing Old English poetry. And let's assess what would happen if we suddenly discovered a seventh, the seventh. As it happens, three of those manuscripts, the Parasalter, the Meter Boethius, Corpus 201, each witness a tiny number of compounds, most of which are very widely attested. We could happily find 300 or 3,000 more manuscripts like those three, and it wouldn't change basically the number of unique compounds that we have. Well, that's the easy argument. But imagine instead if we didn't have the Vicelli book, which we didn't. It was the last one to be uh, edited. It was the last one to be discussed. The number of unique compounds we would fi in, find in Beowulf would rise by 50. There are 50 words which are in Beowulf and in one poem of the Vicelli book. But there's about 250 compounds that are unique to the Vicelli book poems. Therefore, we'd, as it were, gain a bit sorry, lose a bit, but we gain much more and we get a significant increase in the knowledge of our uniquely attested forms. Well, the study of, uh, of compounds uh, in Old English in general and Beowulf in particular has a long uh, history. Uh, and I think what I'd like to uh, nod to here is not just the words, uh, the uh, work by Arthur Brodor, a brilliant book, uh, but also Waldorf, and uh, here Vincent is why I would have put up a picture of the Muppets, but uh, <laughs> didn't do it, uh, and Tarantino. Um, but I think Eric Stanley did a brilliant article many years ago on prose words that creep into verse, which allows us another way of looking at these things. And Mark Griffith again on poetic words that appear in glosses. So we have a very good idea of what constitutes poetic words uh, in Old English. By marking up poetic words, unique compounds, rhyme, continued alliteration, one can arrive, I think, at a sort of synesthetic appreciation of Old English poetry that allows one literally to see the difference between various poets uh, and their work. Uh, and that's what uh, I've been uh, trying to do. In more busy iterations, you can also overlay a different kind of markup to indicate words and forms that are in a putative or demonstrable Latin source, uh, and again to uh, indicate phrases uniquely shared across the corpus. And in such ways, we can see the craft and cunning of Anglo-Saxon poetry. That was a long preamble. Let's have a look at some proper words. If you look at the black, back, two words, two sets of words. Words for sword and ship. And how did I get these words? I went to the uh, thesaurus of Old English, and I found all the words that are supposed to be worth for, for sword, for ship. Uh, and then I, I went through and I sourced them and I saw how common um, um, that they were. 33 different words for a sword. Only three are found in prose and verse, and these are the most commonplace terms. Brand, swear, weapon. Four more that are only in poetry. Bill, edge, eiren, eason, mercha. And two rather rarer poetic forms, one of which is unique to Beowulf, the other unique to Beowulf, and just one other text. Each of the remaining 25 terms is found either uniquely 
or is witnessed only in a single text. And all but one of those is a compound. The exception is a diminutive and looks very much like a coinage to cope with an unfamiliar term. This is hilting, which glosses macaram, word from all time as it happens. Of the rest, three appear in prose, Bieren Sweod, Blickling Homilies, Hilt Sweod, Boethius, Mal Sweod, uh, in a charter. And the first of these is found in a doomsday context that is clearly elevated, even poetic. Uh, and here again, I nod towards uh, Eric Stanley's definition. It talks about doomsday. Antona he his beer and swear your tooth, and that's world ale for sleuth, and a leekoman for shertoth, and this nabidnyar to cleveth. It rhymes, it's got elevated vocabulary, it's more like verse than prose. We're left with 21 forms, 19 of which are in Beowulf, and 17 of them only there, 10 of them just once. The massive overrepresentation of Beowulf again emphasizes that poet's particular and highly focused. Uh, interest on swords and sword types, a feature that's been noted by both Caroline Brady and Hilda Ellis Davidson. The sword words also often compelling evidence that the Beowulf poet was capable of specific coinage. Both of the compounds that appear twice in the poem, good winner, literally sword friend, war friend, Hilda Leoma, battle flame, appear first with a specialized meaning where they're glossed for good winner, trunting, swayed, ear and mercher. It's a sword, it's a sword, it's a sword, it's a sword. And then for the other one, Hilda Leoma, it's a bill, it's an edge, it's a swell. And then when the form appears later in the poem, about a thousand lines later, it carries primarily its literal sense, so warrior and blaze, but still has shades of sword. I think it's hard to deny the artistry of the Beowulf poet here and his apparent pursuit of new forms, which incidentally is elsewhere in Old English appearing clusters. Beowulf poet isn't greatest poet in Old English in terms of innovation, sorry to say that, if we look at Ship, we see that in fact other poets are trying to do similar but different things. We've got 50 words for Ship, 50 forms, let's call it, for Ship. Bart and Ship are commonplace, 12 others have a specialised distribution including in verse, 36 remaining, 9 are found in Beowulf, 4 uniquely. But the notion of a ship as a sea stallion or a sea steed of some sort is perhaps ingrained in our outlook, given the ubiquity of such formulations, particularly in Old Norse Icelandic. Meissner, in his Skaldic Diction, lists 260 examples <laughs> in Skaldic poetry. To, against the 260 in Norse, Old English produces 22, which is kind of pathetic. Ten of them different, if I can put it like that. Never in Beowulf. Beowulf doesn't, uh, doesn't seem to appreciate the notion of a sea seed or a seahorse or a sea riding. Cunewulf, on the other hand, loves it and runs with it. I've given you the ones in just one poem of Cunewulf's, Eleanor, uh, highlighted. And if you flip back a page to passage 20, I'm not going to go through this, you'll see the sheer number of words for horse, seahorse, ship, Every single one of them different, being used in this rather brief passage. What's more extraordinary is that if you look at Eleanor as a whole, poetic words or unique compounds, or both, are found in between one in two and one in three lines. Here, 29 lines out of 36. That's off the charts in every possible measurement that you can make. An extraordinary proportion, more remarkable, because in fact there is nothing in this passage which has any parallel whatsoever in the Latin source. 
This is the Eleanor poet, Matis Kunewolf, making it up. So why? How did they learn to produce verse? We have an answer for Latin. As usual, Latin is more easy to solve, if I can put it that way. We have poetic treatises. We know that they learnt from books. We know that they learnt very specifically lists of words to fit into particular contexts. And on the front of your handout, I had to keep the Latin and the Old English separate, uh, you'll see just one example. Aldhelm gives a list for, these are words that can be scanned as a dactyl. This is a mind-boggling list because it seems utterly useless. For a dactyl usually comes from noun-based compounds when they are formed from the verbal elements gero and ferro, like bristle-bearing, scale-bearing, feather-bearing, iron-bearing, evil-bearing, death-bringing, horn-bearing, hair-wearing, weapon-bearing, tower-bearing, ship-bearing, flame-bearing, sail-bearing, flower-bearing, smoke-bringing, sheep-bringing, pine-bearing, apple-bearing, star-bearing, oyster-bearing, shadow-bearing, cone-bearing, acorn-bearing, bush-bearing, box-tree-bearing, phone-bearing, death-bearing, wool-bearing, as in, thank God, <laughs> a little piece of Lucretius. It's really hard to think of a poem that would include any of these words. It's a random torrent, as it appears, of somewhat obscure-seeming words. Deliberately, however, I think, arranged for mnemonic effect. I should have read it in Latin. Uh, the first three, Cytiges Quamiget Arliger. It's the triad of earth, sea, and sky. It's the three types of animals. You've got rhyme. You've got alliteration. You've got assonance. This is a list that's intended to be remembered and recorded. And it's also a list where we can demonstrate that Anglo-Latin poets used it. It's quite hard to fit in some of these words into poetry, but they did. All the ones in blue actually appear in Aldhelm, and some of them also appear uh, elsewhere. Moreover, we can take it a stage further. Given the link between Aldhelm and Symphosius, the first compound here, Cytiger, I mean, it's really hard to fit lines saying bristle-bearing into any kind of poetic context. Look what Aldhelm, he goes nuts. He gets it from Symphosius, I'm sure, and then he repeats it in six of his, seven of his riddles. Bristle-bearing, bristle-bearing, and, you know, this is beyond the call of duty. Eusebius, another Anglo-Latin poet, repeats it in his uh, riddles, and they're clearly using this as a proper teaching text. We can take it further. Naviger is not a common word, believe it or not, shipbearing. Aldhelm coins the word navigaros calais, shipbearing paths. Calais is also not a particularly common word in poetry. Uh, and he repeats navigarum. But B <coughs> copies navigaro cale. He's copying the formula. He's copying not just the word, but the sense of a shipbearing path. And this is the crux. We can demonstrate beyond peradventure that Anglo-Latin poets copied each other, read each other, copied the formulas that they heard from other poems that they actually read. I'm going to suggest the same thing is true for Old English. If we look at passage four and look at the context of Navigaros Kales, it's often been pointed out that there's little or no riddling element to Aldhelm's Enigmata. And many people have queried their usefulness as teaching tools. I think, again, we're missing the point. I doubt very much whether Aldhelm composed his enigmata to teach, or whether he was primarily focused on their subject matter. <coughs> he wrote them to learn how to produce Latin poetry. And he did it in a very clever way. Why else would you compose a poem where 
for those who can do scansion, congratulations. For those who don't, I'm so sorry. Passage number four, you'll see it's the same scanned line nine out of ten times. This is a poet who's trying out patterns and wants to remember patterns. This is a poet who is also trying out different words. Everything in green, on high cliffs, the higher structure, high peaks, lofty towers, all slightly different, are little formulas for how you do cliffs. Everything in blue is how you do sea. Everything in red is let's go for the fire words. And it's a poetic gradus. We can see this again and again. Five, six, seven, we can deal with fairly quickly. You'll be delighted to know. Um, it's not obvious. Aldhelm's enigma on tortella, what we would call a tortilla, a round loaf of bread, contains um, five different words for shields. So you have to know that Anglo-Saxon shields are round, like loaf of bread. If you want all the different words for shields, you've got to remember the bread riddle. If you want to know uh, words for trees, number five, you've got to go, I'm afraid, to the pregnant sow riddle, which is not necessarily the most obvious place to go. If you want to know about nightingales, there are two places that name nightingales. One of them uh, is actually the one on trumpet, where you have the phrase Luscinia Ruskis, and the other one is the riddle on nightingale, number seven. I hope it will be clear that Alcuin, another Anglo-Saxon poet, in a series of poems that are still known as the nightingale poems, is remembering and recording and recycling Aldhelm's words in the right place, if I can put it like that. Now, by chance, and this is why I've done this rather tortuous path, we do have a nightingale riddle in Old English. It's number eight on your handout. It's the second in a sequence of bird riddles in the Exeter book, and it also raises issues with regard to the poetic vocabulary of Old English verse, as well as its interrelationships with some other Old English poems uh, extant. The whole riddle, and I'm not going to read it for reasons of time, turns on the contrast between sound and silence, the tuneful musical performance of an evening poet contrasted with the audience's respectful silence. In the 11 lines of this riddle, there's not a single word which can be construed as purely poetic. It eschews the poetic vocabulary. But four forms that are unique to the poem, one of which, shiraniya, is a simplex of uncertain meaning. We're not quite sure what it means, but in other Germanic languages it resembles words for female performance, one kind or another. That word might well be picked up if we had more Old English. We might be able to find that this was a genuine word and it's just a very specialist term. For the unique compounds, I'm not so clear. I want to focus on Erwenshop. If you look at Erwenshop, evening poet, ancient poet of evening, line five. If you go through all of the shop compounds in Old English, and yes, I have no friends, uh, <laughs> you'll find this is the only one which has a non-human uh, referent. Poets are people. People are poets, except here. In terms of Erfen, evening, we have it 425 times in Old English. The Dictionary of Old English tells me, so it might even be true. And as a compounding element, there are 45 different evening compounds. But this is part of a tiny little subgroup found only in verse, 
all of which are actually unique to the poems that contain them. In other words, somebody is coining evening compounds, probably. Why evening poet? Well, it's fairly obvious. It's a calc. The solution is Nichtegala, the night singer. By inventing a word, evening poet, you're giving a clue to the solution. I would compare and contrast this riddle with the one that immediately precedes it. This is passage number 10, the famous swan riddle, which is rather beautiful, so I will read it. Kreilmin swiaf thonich cruz and treta, oda da wichbuga, oda wadi drela, quidometa herbeth over halalbicht, histamina, and as herbeft, on merch, thonawida, walknistrengen over folkbeerath, fraquamina, swolath luda on swinsiath, torta singath, thonichitengen bayam, floda and foldan. Again, you have a creature who's at home on the land, in the water, in the air. Think of the compounds that you had at the beginning of the old helm list. You've got one which has the added paradox of silence and then sound. And the verbs that are used to emphasize this paradox, swiyath, swolgath, swinsiath, singath, as Dieter Bitterly suggests, among others, including Jane now. Uh, give the clue. It's a swan. The apparent simplicity of the riddle in linguistic terms, I think, is, is rather beguiling. We've seen that Anglo-Saxon poets freely cite and allude to other works and authors in their verse, so I've put it in the middle, and I'm sorry you have to flip the pages. But if you look at a parallel in the same old English manuscript in the Exeter book, we've got a passage from the Phoenix, where the parallels with both of those two riddles are emphasized uh, in blue. Now we can control this text because the phoenix, of course, has a Latin source. Nothing in this source that is paralleled in the old English riddles comes from the Latin source. That's interesting. I'll just put that out there. It's a very ornate passage. It describes a very elaborate performance. It mentions swan's feathers very deliberately, very explicitly. Uh, it's got an envelope pattern, you've got sound, so I'm just going to read out the, the bits in, in, in blue. Swa seo sunna, swa swinsath on singath, clearer sway, sway clearer, singath swa on swinsath seo sunna. Complicated little envelope pattern going on. The compound sway clearers seems to have been coined to underline the central point of the chiasmus and match clearer sway. It only occurs elsewhere in Old English, in one other place, in another one of the physiologous poems in the same manuscript. I think it's a coinage that's then being imitated. So the red words, as it were, would increase if we uh, went down that route. The passage from the Phoenix, moving from the sound of silence, reverses the or from sound to silence, reverses the order from silence to sound. In the context of a putative connection, it's important to note not only that the passage from the Phoenix explicitly mentions the music of Swan's Feathers, line 137, Swana's Feathera, but also seems to be dramatically detached from its source. I'm going to read you the translation of the Latin, and I hope you can see that it's different. When the sun had struck the threshold of the signing gate and the gentle glimmer of first light had shone, she begins to pour out the modulations of a sacred song to urge on the new light with a marvellous voice that neither the voice of a nightingale ah, or a musical flute, the key word is tibia, can match in Cyrenaean matches, nor yet a dying swan 
be reckoned to be able to imitate, nor the singing string of a Sardinian rye, blah, 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 blah. You can imagine a poet coming across this in the Phoenix in Old English and producing a teaching text based on the nightingale and the swan on the basics uh, of it. I think also I would say at this point, that, and this was a, a wonderful revelation that came to me when I went to the Jorvik Viking Museum many years ago and came across one of those swan bone flutes, so common in Anglo-Saxon Viking uh, burial sites. And I think what we have here in the, in the swan riddle is an allusion to how the animal is used after death. And after its death, it becomes a singing instrument using its tibia, the flute that is mentioned um, in the lines uh, from the phoenix. Okay, we're on the downward stretch. We're used to repetitions within poems. And pages 10 and 11, I've given you the four most extended examples of descriptions of poetic performance in Beowulf. I don't propose to go through them in particular detail, what I want you to notice is the fact that they are all linked very implicitly, the one to the other, by echo words which I've given you in blue and in italics. They're linked in other ways. Every single one of them comes just before the advent of monstrosity. First poetry, then monstrosity. We'll see how the reception goes after this. Uh, the kin of Cain, Grendel, Grendel's mother, the dragon. Each of them comes after these uh, events. The first and briefest shares with the longest, 13, 16, the opening formula, there was, there was, there was Sangon Sway, there was Yid Danyer, there was Herpan Sway, link, link, link. These are almost unique within Beowulf, by the way, and there's a couple that are unique. Just as the fact that the phrase Feran uh, Rekan and Feran Rekta only occurs in these two places in all Old English poetry that we have. The Hapax compound, Goldman Wudu, let alone Gorman with the Gretchen, only here in all Old English poetry. Warnyamunda, uniquely shared by passage 14, passage 16. This is a poet who wants you to remember his coinages, his forms, his words. Now, Beowulf obviously is not the only poem to describe poetic production. I do think it's the most important. So, uh, in a spirit of uh, comradely controversy, let's talk about Alfred. I think it's rather striking that the one king that we know from his biographer, Asa, to have loved Old English verse, to have memorized Old English verse, to have ensured that both of his children were taught Old English verse again and again and again, you see how lucky you are, should himself have been identified as a poet. And this is passage 17. And I had a great long bit about this, and then I found out Susan Irvin's got an even better bit recently, so thank you for spoiling it, Susan. Uh, Susan highlights, on the one hand, the explicit references to poetry and the use of poetic words. So I put them in purple. Um, but on the other hand, words more associated with prose, and this is uh, thanks to uh, Eric Stanley, we can identify these, like Erlinger, like spell. What I think is interesting, and I don't know whether Susan didn't notice or just didn't want to say because she didn't want to upset Malcolm, but the word Erlinger, uniquely used here as a noun, is only found outside this reference as an adjective and only in the following texts. The pastoral care. Well, that would be Alfred. The soliloquies. No comment. And the prose Boethius. 
In other words, it's circulating within a very small circle of texts. What's interesting is that it's rather a skillful poem. What Alfred does in the magical prefaces, you'll see that in passage 17 and 19, both from the meters, there are almost, there are no, in fact, no, very few poetic words. And that's true for the meters in general. But what it does instead is wordplay. Laod, people, laod, song, list, and lust. Lines three to four. Laod wirte list, him was lust Mitchell, that he theosum, lust Mitchell is presumably Bruce Mitchell's younger brother. Thisum laodum, laod spelloda. Emphasized by repeated alliteration uh, on, on L uh, there. Now, the only other place that you find in all Old English, uh, well, we'll come to it in number 19, but before that, I was rather struck, the first time I read this, I thought, it's just like the beginning of Exodus. And given the fact that Alfred calls his law book, his so-called dome book, his judgment book, and connects himself with Moses and Mosaic law, it's, I think, very striking. The poetic preface echoes very closely, and again, I'm going to say it, uniquely in the written record, extant record, the opening lines of Exodus, which begins precisely in praise of the judgments of Moses, passage 18. I'll just refer you to the last two lines, 6-7. Langs on the red, haladam sedjum, you hear us of the willa, as opposed to folkudna red, haladam sedjum, klista to the willa. You can take it further if you point out, and you can do this, thank God the Dictionary of Old English is up to G, folkkuth is only found in all extant Old English poetry in here, and in Exodus. So, the compound itself seems to heighten this. What's interesting is that that Laod, uh, Laod pun, which we find in passage 17, elsewhere is only found in one other place in all extant Old English literature, and it, it's a passage describing Homer. Now, is Alfred trying... Oh, Alfred, or another poet of the same name, is he trying to identify himself with Homer? Well, it's kind of an interesting passage. This is number 19. What I've given you in, uh, in highlighted in yellow are all the bits that come from the Old English prose. And you'll notice that none of it affects the echo words that I'm talking about. He's building on a bait set for Homer in a couple of... He's building on a basis which is basically looking at things in two different, through two different lenses. The prose text, and he's now poetrifying it up by using a different set of techniques. I hope it's clear from the marker that Anglo-Saxon poets did the policeman in very different voices. That Anglo-Saxon poets had their own ideas of individuality. And I, I want to close with, with a contrast from oddly one of my favourite poems, and not just because it's basically named after me. Uh, these are passages 11 and 12, Andreas. <coughs> it's a poem about my namesake Satan, his adventures among the cannibals, and I trust that that's not a, a, a metaphor for what will happen later. The number of uniquely shared compounds and formulas strongly suggest that the Andreas poet knew and consciously echoed both Beowulf and the poems of Cunewulf, but here I want to focus very, very briefly on aspects of originality. And I've picked two passages from Andreas that have almost no root in the, old, in the Latin source. This is the Andreas poet freebasing, uh, if you like. You might consider first how the Andreas poet, uh, the Andreas miraculously dries up the wondrous flood that's emerged from a marble pillar. Smolta was a seer one. This is 11. 
similar was the uh, folder from Floda, same little thing we had in uh, the, the, the lines almost immediately above, Riddle 7, line 9, Floda from Folban, so sea and, uh, sea and land being things. So I fault you stop, Wurtenburg water, bleed on motor, fair defender. Thou was forthcoming, yeah, after year now, yeah, when swathered to Halia's house, least east for ye Brim rad ye bard, thou sail bell to clad. Oh, stop, you're killing me with this rhyme. Uh, Earth shaft, Ayers lich, and therein for let flowed Fadmian, fell away us, yeah, tender grind, grund ale for swale. It's a little purple passage, even though there's not many purple words particularly in there. You've got different examples of rhyme, of assonance. Flode, fault, ye stop, mold, flowed, ferth, forth, hust, hust, brim, rad, ye bar, toklad, ye grin, grund, ale, for swell. Which actually are the only words that are important in that passage. It's highlighted hourly. It seems to offer a, a method into the Andreas Poet's working methods. Four of the only five words that do have a, 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 some connection with the Latin. Toklad, flowed, grund, for swell, portate partake in four different kinds of sound effects. It's as if Andreas, looking at the Latin, is going, I can work with that, and then carries on and does his own thing. The opening half line of the passage, extraordinarily enough, can be matched in two further uh, places in extant Old English. I've given you the lines, good luck, A, and the Phoenix, both of which poems can be connected for other reasons, not only with the signed poems of Kunewolf, but also with Andreas. We're talking about a little poetic community here. They've read each other's works, they've copied each other's works, they're repeating each other's works. And it's separate from the wider body of uh, Old English uh, uh, poetry. If we look at the two words that are unique to Andreas, Ferthia Feyander and Brimrad, the two ones in red, you'll see that both of them actually appear elsewhere in the poem. And I've given you the example uh, in passage 12 of the other occurrence of Brimrad. And as luck would have it, it's in the middle of another truly extraordinary passage where the poet seems to be, did you like what I did with Brimrad? You're going to love this. There's nothing in the Latin or the Greek or any of the source material which suggests this passage. An extraordinary bit. A wintry landscape. Anglo-Saxons did winter and sea voyages rather, not as good as the Canadians, but rather well. <laughs> Found elsewhere only in the Phoenix, line 1757. Found only elsewhere, two lines later in the Phoenix, in line 59. He's echoing the same poem that he seems to know and expanding it. Is basically blah 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 blah. is the, the line, the other one of the other uh, unique parallels that's found here. Literally, frost and ice are described as battle striders. That's extraordinary. I think you could find an awful lot of manuscripts of Old English poetry and not find frost and uh, and snow described as warriors, described as battle striders. There's one extraordinary parallel that I can think of in, in Fosbrava saga, where, uh, and it's not quite the same. It says, uh, Frost and snow walked around all night, which is not quite the same thing, but it's personifying this uh, sort of material. 
I think in passages like this, which we can isolate by identifying poetic words and hapax words, we find the artistry and the originality of Andreas at its best. All right, peroration. I hope it'll be clear from all of these examples that what makes Anglo-Saxon poetry special is its extraordinary richness of diction, its curious combination of the inherited and the original, and the endless search of successive poets across several centuries and in two different languages, each of them to find their own verses in voices in verse, whether in Latin or in the vernacular. Anglo-Saxon poetry was born of an intriguing combination of a distinct tradition, deriving from both an ancient and ultimately oral, vernacular, native, initially pagan poetic background that can still be detected into the 12th century, and from literate, Latinate, imported Christian verse, the influence of which is already seen in the earliest uh, material. Anglo-Saxon poets, I'm suggesting, read and heard and repeated each other in ways that we can still trace, should we wish to. We can choose to grieve for the incalculable and unknowable amount of Anglo-Saxon poetry that has undoubtedly been lost. Or we can choose to believe that what we have from across the linguistic divide connecting poets from different periods together is worth reading in its own right. I firmly believe that the best days for the study of the craft and cunning of Anglo-Saxon poetry in both Latin and Old English still lie uh, ahead, and that there is much yet to be discovered that I at least cannot quite imagine. What I do imagine is that some future Rawlinson and Bosworth professor will one day lampoon the efforts of this by then, I sincerely trust, well-alcoholised heretic. <laughs> and maybe smile faintly at his folly. And on that fond hope, let's please uh, repair elsewhere, perhaps with a drink or two, an unlooked-for song, and unleash our inner muse. Thank you.